All right, the 22nd Psalm. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me from the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. Add, and for me, my clothing, they cast lot, for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Heavenly Father, here we are in your glorious presence and we're remembering not just the resurrection, but what preceded it today, the cross of Jesus, which was necessitated by our sins committed in our life, an offense against you, a righteous and holy God. But through the power of the resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life and we know that we will live in your presence by simple faith in what Jesus alone has done and we thank you for that we want to give you praise today for having given us this beautiful weather on this glorious day where we remember the deeds of the Lord and we want to thank you we want to give you the praise and the honor that you're due I would ask that any person here who has never heard of the glory and the marvel of what Jesus Christ did would pay attention today and would heed the words of life and of salvation so that when their families in the future stand next to their grave, they will say, surely this person will rise again in the glory of the resurrection through the power of Jesus Christ. This I pray, and I pray that each person here will be blessed today. And may you be exalted above all, all honor, all glory, all majesty. You are our God, and we praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, I got just a few announcements for you. Um, the people that attend regularly here know that uh, we have uh, uh, purchased a building to move into. Uh, being on the beach is very nice, and uh, there's no problem with coming out here from time to time and, and having services. But um, there are many, many times where we've been rained on. We've had red tide. We've had crows above us and uh, uh, every, every possible thing that you can imagine, little mosquitoes and this and that. And... Uh, <laughs> So it's been uh, it's been a long couple of years, and uh, we've finally been able to buy a building. So we'll be moving into that hopefully in a couple months. Uh, we're going to expand the back of the building, make it a little larger, and put in some uh, handicap accessible bathrooms and the like. So uh, it'll take a while, but uh, 
Uh, that'll be on Superior Avenue, which is right in Gulfgate, and uh, it will be called the Superior Word because it's Superior Avenue and it's the Word of God, and of course the Word of God is superior to all others. Um, and um, uh, just in case anybody wants to get baptized today, I, I make this available to anybody anytime. We've got plenty of water right behind us, and if it's something that you've never done, is followed Jesus Christ in believer's baptism, which is a picture of what we're talking about today. He was buried. We are buried with him through the water of baptism, and he was raised from the grave, and we're brought out of it to the power of new life through the Holy Spirit. So if you ever want to do that, including today, just come up to me, and uh, I've got a busy day ahead of me, but I will make time for that if, uh, if anybody wants to do that. And um, I have a prayer. I, we prayed last week for this gentleman, and uh, Aetna failed him. He uh, is waiting to have uh, triple bypass surgery, I believe it is, have two valves replaced and one valve worked on, and um, uh, the doctor has moved to Sarasota, and he's waiting to get insurance. And so we would pray not only for Paul Stoll, that uh, he would get his operation and uh, be restored to full health, but we would also pray that Aetna would, you know, be able to get their insurance for this gentleman so that that can come about. And uh, for those of you who don't know Paul, he and Elaine were in Japan for the past year uh, from as missionaries, and we supported them from church on the beach, and uh, they uh, did great work over there. I can assure you that uh, people heard the word of the Lord. There were people that came to the Lord in a very isolated country. Uh, if you've ever been there, you know this. And um, uh, so I, my hat is off to them eternally. I mean, I'm just going to be thinking about what they did uh, the rest of my life. But uh, I want to thank everybody that is out here today. Normally, I do a New Testament reading unless the sermon gets a little long. Um, today, I'm not going to do one because the sermon will get a little long. And um, uh, instead, all I'm going to do is I'm going to read you, rather than a second psalm today, I'm going to read you something from Isaiah. It's uh, the Suffering Servant Passage, which begins in Isaiah 52, uh, 52, 13, and goes through Isaiah 53, 12. Once again, we read the uh, Messianic Psalm, which told us of the cross of Jesus, and this tells us also of the work of Jesus and uh, what he did for us. And I do not believe that we can have a full understanding of the power and the glory of the resurrection without understanding the cross. And so today is going to be speaking more about what he did for us in that context than what he did for us in the resurrection. The resurrection is just something that follows naturally because of his work. But uh, here we go. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what they had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they, were, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Our sermon today is going to be based on a short passage from the book of Revelation. It's um, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And the sermon is entitled, The Keys of Hades and Death. And today, if you don't know, it is Resurrection Day 2013. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I do something every week at Church on the Beach before I give my sermon. And it's because I want people to understand um, history as well as um, uh, the Bible. And without knowing history, we can't know you know, we, we can't have proper perspective of where we're heading in the world. So I do this, and it's something I enjoy very much, and I'd like to do that for you today as well. Today is 31 March, and on this day in 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain issued the Alhambra Edict, expelling Jews who were unwilling to convert to Christianity. Now, this is something that uh, Christianity is born uh, grief for. Uh, we did things that were not appropriate in the past, However, at the same time, God's purposes were being fulfilled through that because um, Deuteronomy 28 gives the blessings and the curses of the people of Israel when they obey and when they don't. And, uh, of course, for disobedience, it means exile from the land. And when they are in God's favor, they're back in the land. I believe that Israel has a plan and a purpose for the world in the future. And Jesus, by his own word, said that he is returning to his people, Israel. And so uh, we need to uh, remember that, that uh, uh, we're looking at history and we're saying how bad things were, but it was a part of God's plan. But that was on this day in 31 March. And then in 1776, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, John, that women were determined to foment a rebellion if the new Declaration of Independence failed to guarantee their rights. They were given certain rights and they weren't given certain rights. And it took many long years before they got their full rights. But uh, that's something that was important to uh, Abigail Adams before the, the uh, declaration was even signed. Uh, 1854, on this day, the U.S. government signed the Treaty of Kanagawa uh, with Japan. The act opened the ports of Shimoda and Hakotade to American trade. And uh, if you've ever been to Japan, I spent six years there, and um, it's a wonderful country. We uh, are great allies with them. Uh, we had a little bit of problem with them in between this treaty and our current day, as you know. And uh, they are a very peaceable people now. They've laid aside all aggression. They have no military of their own, only a Japanese self-defense force, and we are their protectors. But uh, this all began back in 1844 on on this day. And uh, in 1870, Thomas Mundy Peterson. Anybody know who he is? On this day in 1870, he was the first black man to vote in the United States of America. We were overcoming some of the ills of our past, and uh, we're moving forward ever forward in our uh, pursuit of this. And uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing that happened on this day in 1870. Then in 1880, and I'm not even going to give the name, uh, the first town completely illuminated with electric light. Does anybody know what town that was? Wabash, Indiana was the first town ever illuminated with uh, electric light. And then in 1899 in Paris, the Eiffel Tower officially opened on this day. Uh, A little later, in 1900, the W.E. Roach Company was the first automobile company to put an advertisement in a national magazine. Does anybody know the name of that national magazine? Something that's been around forever. The what? No, Saturday Evening Post was the the, uh, magazine. All right, and then in 1902, I bring these type of things up from time to time, and it sounds perverse, but I do it for a reason. Um, And this is something that happens all the time. We have uh, earthquakes, we have catastrophes, we have explosions, and people die. But I bring this up. Uh, In 1902, 22 coal miners in Tennessee were killed by an explosion. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because every one of us has a date with destiny. None of us is going to live forever apart from Jesus Christ. We're all going to go to a box that is longer than it is wide in the ground. And we need to be right with Jesus Christ before that happens. And not one of those people got up that morning and said, today, I am going to get blown up in an explosion. They all went to work and thought they're going to come home and kiss mom or, you know, kiss their uh, daughter or their wife or whatever and go about life. And it didn't happen. And uh, I say this week after week and people always look up when I say it, but you don't know a tree branch could fall on you right now and kill you. 
we don't know the next moment of our existence. And so I would ask every person here to think on that and to know that your life is coming to an end and that you have to be right with God before that happens. Uh, in 1917, the U.S. purchased the Virgin Islands from Denmark. We paid $25 million for that. They got buildings that are worth more than that down there now. I mean, what a, I keep talking about these land purchases that America made over the past year. I mean, wonderful stuff. $25 million for the U.S. Virgin Islands when we bought it from Denmark. Then in 1918, for the very first time, U.S. Daylight Savings Time went into effect. Now, I know somebody will know this one. Who was it that first proposed daylight savings time? What's that? Farmers? No. Well, it was in on their behalf. It was oh. Benjamin Franklin. Oh. Yeah, there you go. I thought somebody for sure would get that. There was a movie that I, Nicolas Cage did a couple years ago about finding a bunch of treasure, and he actually mentioned it during the movie. But uh, anyway, that was uh, 1918. And then in 1932, I mean, great stuff. The Ford Motor Company debuted the V8 engine. And you talk about something that has been the, the mainstay of American motoring for eons since 1932. That is uh, uh, the V8 engine. And then finally in 1994, uh, Nature magazine announced that a complete skull of Australopithecus afarensis was found in Ethiopia. And the finding is of humankind's earliest ancestor. Well, if you believe the Bible, and I do, I believe the Bible, I take it absolutely literally, it's not our earliest ancestor. We did not evolve. The Bible says that God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living being. So uh, there's a conflict. And I have to tell you all that that was one of the hardest things when I came to Jesus Christ was putting aside evolution because it was so drummed into me over the years. But um, uh, you have a choice to make. Did we evolve or did we actually, were we created by a God who wanted to have a relationship with us? And if you believe in the premise of original sin, which is entirely the premise of the coming of Jesus Christ, then you have to believe that we were created because you can't evolve into original sin. So there's something for you to think about before we uh, get started today. And I will now read our sermon text, which is Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus is many things to us. Were we to quote all of his titles from the Bible, it would take us about 30 minutes. I did that during a sermon one time. Every title that he has throughout scripture, and it took about 30 some minutes. In the two verses that I just read, he gives three titles, one of which comprises four individual aspects. After that, he gives not a title, but he gives a description. I have the keys to Hades and death. The term Hades is found in earlier Greek literature, and the Bible uses terms that people are familiar with. In the Bible, it is associated with the infernal regions. It is a dark and it is a dismal place in the very depths of the earth, and it is the place where disembodied wicked spirits go to. It is a very uncomfortable place. There is a time, though, when Hades will be opened and death will be loosed, and all people will come and they will stand before the Lord Jesus, and they will be judged for their deeds. This authority was granted to him by God the Father because of his obedient life. He was crucified for sins he did not commit. And because he was without sin, he rose from the dead. The keys of Hades and death are held by him because he prevailed over them. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our God. He is Jesus. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Galatians. It's chapter 6. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, God forbid that I should boast but in the cross of Jesus Christ. One may wonder why he would say this instead of perhaps, God forbid that I should boast except in the resurrection of Jesus. What is it about the cross which mentally causes Paul to cling to it first and foremost? When we understand the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ, then the resurrection naturally follows in our understanding of his work and how it also sets us free. Today, we will celebrate that glorious moment when Christ arose and death was defeated forever. And so we will look back at how it was possible that a man could come out of the grave and how it guarantees that we can too. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. 
I have three thoughts for you today, and the first is the wages of sin. Now, I want to tell you before I get into that, that this first thought and part of the second thought is going to be rather depressing. And I don't mean to depress you, but I do not believe, as I said to Liz over here before we started, that you can understand the good without understanding the bad. So you're going to hear some things that maybe you don't want to hear on a, a, a happy day. But this is what necessitated the death of Jesus Christ. But it also shows us the glory of what he did after his death. Every week as I finish my sermon, I give a short explanation about our state before God and what it means to each of us. And then I tell how Jesus can correct that in us if we are willing to accept it. This entire sermon is going to be that short statement. It's going to take the entire sermon to get through to that point. I've told this to very young children. I've told it to people from foreign countries. I told it to my old business partners who are from Thailand, and they don't speak very good English, and they understood it. I've told it to atheists. I've told it to people of every religion that I can think of, and people from every one of these categories has grasped the simplicity of the gospel, and they have reached out for this gift. As simple as the message is, though, and how simple it can be, that can also be explored in the most complex ways as well. It is fit for any person of any age level or any level of mental competence. It is a message of hope, of restoration, and of God's grace. The Bible speaks on the premise that there is a God and that he is the creator. The first sentence in the Bible doesn't explain there's a God and let me tell you how you can know this. It just simply takes it as an axiom. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It speaks in this manner, and it claims to be his word spoken to us. From the beginning, it implies this. It's implicitly uh, seen throughout its pages, and then it explicitly states it as well. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. It is a story of how we got into the mess that we are in in the first place and how we can be raised out of it. It also tells us very clearly that there is only one God and that it is the only true word from God and that the one that it reveals is this one true God. It is the most intolerant book that was ever penned, and yet it contains the most tolerant message ever given for anybody who is willing to receive it. At the beginning, the Bible tells us what he did and how he did the things that he did concerning the creation. It tells where man came from and how he was brought to life. At that time, man was placed in a garden of beauty and of wonder, a place of delight and fellowship with God. In this garden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very first words ever recorded as being spoken to man by his creator are these, Mikol etzagan I'm sorry, I kind of blew that there. Of every tree of the garden, of, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. After saying this to the man, God gave a warning. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you don't know the story, it's a very sad indictment on man. He turned from God and he believed the lies of the devil, the serpent, the accuser. He's Satan. God gave man free will, and he exercised his free will to reject the truth and to believe the lie, and he fell from favor with his creator. Something to note, though, is that Adam continues to live on after this. In fact, he lived to be 930 years old. So if God told Adam that he would die in the day that you eat of it, and yet he continued to live for almost a thousand years, then there appears to be a conflict in the Bible right at the beginning. Or we have misunderstood what it means to die. Death has more than one facet in the Bible. There is life in a body. This is a soul. When the soul departs the body, the body dies. This is not the death which God was speaking about, although this type of death is also a result of what the man did. The death being spoken of is a spiritual death. It is a separation from the source of life. The moment that man disobeyed God, sin entered into the world and death came through sin. The man was separated from God. He became spiritually dead. This dead state has transferred from one man to the next generation for the next 6,000 years, ever since man was created. It transfers from the father 
to the child. And because all of us here are born of a father, we are all born spiritually dead. This is the state of fallen man, and this is what the Bible shows us throughout its pages. However, right there at the very beginning, just after the fall, came a promise of one who would come to right the wrong of Adam and to restore life to man. This would be a glorious promise that was coming right at the beginning, the first pages of the Bible. It comes in what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it shows us a note of hope and of promise. This is the Lord speaking to the devil who had just deceived the man. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Speaking to the serpent, the Lord said that the offspring of the woman would crush his head. Man is not mentioned in this verse, but woman comes from a man. And so this will be a human being. But for some reason, he is noted as the seed of the woman. Catastrophe follows along calamity. As man strives in a world that is ruled by the devil, a world full of death, and a world that is at enmity. They're fighting with God. But in the midst of chaos, God works out a plan. He has a promise which reveals his infinite wisdom, his grace, his mercy, and his love towards man. A line of people is chosen, and they're highlighted all the way from the beginning, from Adam and for the next 4,000 years. From time to time, someone is selected from what appears to be outside of this line, and yet somehow they seem to fit perfectly into the line. They fit so perfectly that sometimes we often miss why they're even mentioned at all. If you were here during the Genesis sermons, the previous Genesis sermons, you know that the two daughters of Lot are mentioned and they slept with their father and you think, why is this story in here? It's because both of those women had children and both of those children became ancestors of Jesus Christ. That's why that story is included in there. The entire book of Ruth, this person is selected from outside of the chosen line of people and yet she somehow fits into the picture and she becomes an ancestor of Ruth. And time and time and time again, we see these things happening. We see the significance of why these stories are in here. Each story here tells us of the spiritual side of our own physical reality. God is working in and through the people of the world to bring about his plan and bring it to fulfillment. He does it in a way that most of these people normally have no clue that they are even involved in his unfolding drama, which is leading to this glorious one, this man of promise. Each of them came from Adam, every one of these people, and so each one of them is spiritually dead from the moment that they're conceived. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Adam sinned, and when he did, he died. We were born in sin, and therefore we were born dead. This is what the Bible tells us. Even the great king of Israel, King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he understood this. He penned these words after having committed adultery and murder. He said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David did not attempt to justify him, himself or his actions. Instead, he acknowledged that they merely added to the condemnation that he had already born simply by being born. The sin already existed and he had only heaped up more guilt in the process of living. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that man is dead in sins and trespasses. Jesus tells us in John chapter, yes, Jesus. Jesus tells us in John chapter three that we are condemned already. There's nothing we need to do to be condemned. It's already happened. As sad and as hopeless as all of this sounds, all we need to do is nothing to be cast into the fiery pit of hell. We're already headed there. We have, without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. If it is left up to us, the condemnation already exists. The sentence is merely waiting to be executed. The Bible says that without God's intervention and the fulfillment of the promise he made, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, have a party. Sleep with your neighbor's wife. Steal from your fellow man. Kill anybody that you don't like. It does not matter because we are headed on the highway to hell. 
and there is no U-turn available. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We have inherited Adam's sin, and the wages of sin is death. Goodbye, cruel world. Hello, eternal damnation. Our second thought today, it'll get a little happier, a sinless life. There are religions which teach that we can attain a sinless state by looking internally. There are spiritualists and teachers who hold courses and seminars on this all the time. Oprah Winfrey does it. Oh, you can become sinless in this life. There are people who I know, they come to me from time to time and they tell me about the next great thing. There are those who believe that the world will get better if we only take this course of action or if we take that course of action. Global warming advocates are trying to make the world better by taking a course of action which is contrary to the Bible. Movies speak about this kind of thing all the time, a better world, a world without sin, and they're all wrong. The problem is not an attitude. It isn't an external battle. It isn't a different path that we can lay out for ourselves and for others. The problem is in us. It is a part of us. The problem is who we are. I got a little philosophy for you now, and I don't mean to confuse anybody here, and if you don't understand everything we say today, don't worry about it as long as you understand the greater picture of why these things are the way they are. God created. When God created, it included three things which occurred all at one time. Philosophers have known this for eons. They've been writing about it since the time of Aristotle. But Einstein proved it scientifically. He proved it mathematically. Time, space, and matter all came into existence at the exact same moment. Time is dependent on space and matter. Space is dependent on time and matter, and matter is dependent on space and time. None of them exist independently of the others. And if one exists, they all exist. As God created these things, he is before they are. In other words, before he created them, they did not exist. The Bible says that God is eternal. He is outside of time. Eternal in God does not mean like he starts here and he just goes forward. It means that he exists apart from this. The Bible says God is spirit. He has no parts. He has no voids. He doesn't have matter. He doesn't have space. And he doesn't have time. God is apart from these things. When he created time, it began at a set point and it is moving forward from that point. Everything that is associated with it is also moving forward from that point. When Adam sinned at the fall of man, time continued to move forward. He could never go back and undo what he had done. Each of us is born from a man who is in the stream of time, and we are all moving headlong into the future. The past is simply instructing us on what happened before, but we can't go back and undo it. We can only learn from it, and we can put our hope in anything which God, who is outside of time, has told us will come about at some point in the future from where we are right now. This leaves us with the problem of sin, though. Adam sinned. We inherited it. Adam died. We are dead. We cannot revive ourselves. It is not possible. There is as much chance of a rock speaking itself to life as there is for us to change our dead state. It's not possible. So much for these religions and people who claim that you can attain a state of sinlessness. It cannot happen. If you hear somebody tell you this, run in the other direction. They speak the exact same sort of lies that the devil spoke to Adam, which got us into this mess in the first place. However, to prove that we can trust the things that God says will happen, he took time along the way to show us things that will happen at closer intervals. He said he would open a highway for the Israelites to walk through in the Red Sea. And guess what? He did it. He said that he would bring the captives of Israel back to their land after a specific amount of time. And he did it. In fact, Jeremiah wrote that. It's, he said it would be 70 years before I bring the captives back for their disobedience. Daniel is up in Persia. He's reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he says, Lord, it's been 70 years. And he makes his great prayer of faith saying it's time to return your captives back home and that's what he did he takes these short interval prophecies and he fulfills them so that we can have a trust and a hope in what he is telling us time and time again he does this he shows us that he is transcendent over time and that what he says will come about actually does and he has done it often enough in history 
to show us that the stories are not just merely myths of the past, but they are recurring realities in the world in which we live. In our lifetime, and I mean every single person here, prophecies from thousands of years ago have been proven true. And he is showing us that he has not forgotten about us. The first one is some of you older people will remember this in the book of uh, Ezekiel chapter four. It prophesies that Israel will be returned a second time back to their land. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 11, 11, I will stretch out my hand a second time and bring back the captives of Israel. And he said it before the first exile. But Ezekiel four gives the exact specifics. It will be 2,520 biblical years, 360 day years, which is 907,200 days. And to the day on 14 May of 1948, he brought his people Israel back to their land, whether they deserved it or not. And then a few years later, 19 years later, Jerusalem was recaptured by the Israelites. Well, guess what happened? 19 years after Jerusalem, the Israelites were exiled, Jerusalem fell. So you have the same pattern occurring in history 907,200 days later on June 7th of 1967. God is showing us that he is faithful and reliable in what he has promised us. And then in 2008, everybody here was alive in 2008. Guess what happened? Gaza went back to the Philistines, the Palestinians. The Bible knew that this would happen. And it says it's going to happen again. The land of Israel is going to be divided. And judgment upon the nations is going to come, according to Joel 3, verse 1. These things are real, and they are happening in time so that we can trust God's greater promises. Because of these things, because of these type of things, he gives us a confidence that these greater promises, which are yet future to us now, will also occur. To God, who is outside of time, a day is no different than a thousand years. In fact, that's right out of the psalm. Psalm 90, verse 4 says that the day to you, O Lord, is like a thousand years gone by. And Peter picks up on that psalm in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. And he says, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. If he says, I will do this tomorrow, and it happens, it is no different than if he said something 4,000 years ago. This is coming, and even if it hasn't happened yet, it is going to happen. It will come to pass it is 100% guaranteed. God said right at the beginning that the seed of the woman would come and he came exactly as God told us he would. The seed of the woman came and it has forever changed the state of the world and the hearts of men who have looked for new life and new hope. And that brings us to our third and final thought today. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For 4,000 years after the promise, a young virgin in the land of Israel was told by an angel that she would conceive and bear a child. Her response was normal and it was expected. She said, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel's response to her indicated the fulfillment of the hope given in the presence of Adam and his wife right after their tragic mistake. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God, the seed of the woman. It all becomes clear. A person will come into the stream of humanity being born of a woman who is the daughter of a man. But the Father will be God. He has no earthly father, and so no sin is transmitted to this child. Unlike David and each one of us who was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin, this child would be brought forth in holiness and conceived in virtue and purity. The first sinless life since the creation of man was going to occur in the land of Israel. It's the center of nations and it is the focus of the biblical narrative. God's promise was coming about and yes, the child was born and he grew into a man and he lived out the life of an obedient Jew in the nation of Israel. He was born under the law of Moses which is the standard by which God would judge his people. God promised the Israelites back in the book of Leviticus. He said, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. However, the Bible goes on to show us that nobody could live by those standards. The law merely further condemned the soul that was already born in sin. However, being born without sin 
and then fulfilling the law that none other could fulfill, Jesus prevailed over the law and over the death which is inherently found in the law. Everything that man needed for life was found in him. Life, sinless perfection at birth, sinless perfection before the law. It was all to be found in him. But what good is that for us? Is God mocking us by showing us his greatness at the trial of our condemnation? Is that what's going on here? I did it. Why couldn't you do it too? No, not at all. God was going to do more than anyone could have imagined. He was going to take his own perfect son and make him an offering for the sins of the world. Wonder why I read Isaiah 53 earlier? It was to show us 700 years before he came what was coming. And a sin offering should not be misunderstood. If we make an offering of an animal, it can't take away sin because it is in a different category than a human being. Sin cannot be transferred to an animal from a man. The sacrifices of the temple period proved that this was true. If they could, then the sacrifices would have stopped being made. But they continued on year after tedious year as a witness to their own ineffectiveness before the enormity of our sin. But what about a human offering? Wouldn't that work instead? Cultures throughout history have done this time and time again. You go down to Mexico or where the Incas or the Mayans were, and you see these temples that were erected, and they'd take these young virgins, and they'd stab them in the heart and cut out their heart, and they'd hold it up to everybody and say, this is taunting for our sin, and we're going to have a great harvest, and all of these other things that they expected because of that. The answer is no, that wouldn't work. The reason is that the human who is sacrificed is already stained with sin. She was born from a father. No, a human sacrifice merely compounds one's guilt by offering an impure and unholy offering to a holy God. Then what about a baby? A little baby that never sinned. Won't that be acceptable? No, it won't. The Bible shows us time and time and time again that not only is such an offering unacceptable, but it is an abomination to God. They tried this all throughout the Old Testament. The baby inherited daddy's sin. And therefore, the offering is also impure and it's unholy. And further, the baby was deprived of the very life that it could have had because of the greed of the sin-stained soul who thought that they could please God at the expense of another life that couldn't even defend itself. The guilt has only increased more. The book of Micah asks this question, which is in response to everything I just proposed to you. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? They were mandated under the sacrificial system. And it begs a no answer. 10,000 rivers of oil? Begs a no answer. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer is no. These things will not work. The Bible shows us that nothing we do and nothing that we offer can bring about reconciliation between God and us. Our offerings can never undo what Adam did. The sin exists, it is in us, and it has separated us from him. This takes us back to God's son. It takes us back to Jesus. What we could not do for ourselves, God did by his own hand. Paul explains this portion of Jesus' work in Romans chapter 8. He writes there, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He says elsewhere, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was born without sin. He lived perfectly before the law without sinning, thus fulfilling the law on our behalf. And then he gave up his life for our sin, thus condemning sin in the flesh. The righteous requirements of the law are found in him. The cross of Jesus Christ opened up all of the attributes of God to be realized at one moment in human history and thus for all of time. I already showed you that God is the creator. Everything about God simply is. 
I'm going to give you a little more philosophy and then we'll be done. Because he created time, he is outside of time, and thus there is no change in God. As this is so, he's perfectly righteous. His righteousness is. It doesn't change. Any violation of God's righteousness must be judged, or he isn't righteous. But he is, and therefore his righteousness cannot be compromised. In the same way, God is perfectly just. Because he is, the penalty for a violation of his righteousness must be perfect. The law demands that every violation be punished and that the wages of sin is death. We have earned death and we've earned condemnation. If we don't receive this, then God is not perfectly just, but he is. God is also perfectly holy. Because we are made unclean from our sins against his perfectly holy nature, We must be eternally separated from him, or he is not perfectly holy, but he is. If a person commits only one moral transgression in his entire life, it is sufficient to eternally separate him from God. God cannot accept 1% unrighteousness, and God does not weigh sins on a balance. Nothing but absolute righteousness and pure holiness can be accepted by God. Adding to the problem is that God is truthful. Now, how would that add to the problem that we have? He has spoken from his very nature. He's given us the Bible, which tells us what is and what is not acceptable for man. If God overlooks the words which are spoken in absolute truth, then he's not truthful, and that's impossible. However, God has promised in his word that he will redeem his people, and he's the God of truth. He's spoken it, so it must be true, or he's not truthful. This is also impossible. On the other side of this is God's mercy. He is absolutely merciful. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. However, if in his mercy he overlooks our sins, then he violates his own righteousness. That would be ridiculous to even consider. Further, God is gracious. Gracious is getting what you do not deserve. He longs to participate in fellowship with his beings, his creatures, and he longs to lavish infinite grace upon them. However, because he's perfectly holy, this cannot occur with sinful man, or he is not perfectly holy, and that is impossible. And also, and finally, God is love. God loves each person perfectly, but he cannot fellowship with his beloved creatures because of their sins. If he were to do so, he would violate his own just, righteous, and holy nature. This is also impossible. This leaves a tension between the characteristics of God and man who has sinned. Put yourself in the middle, write those characteristics around him, and there's this tension. They're all pulling against each other, and we cannot resolve it. The tension is removed in the cross of Jesus Christ, his son. All of these attributes of God are realized in what he did right there at Calvary. His righteousness is satisfied for us by taking God's wrath out on a perfect substitute. His justice is satisfied in the wrath having been poured out. His holiness is upheld by accepting us through the sacrifice of his perfect son, Jesus. What Jesus' perfect blood has washed is purified and it is clean forever, and thus it is holy His truth is realized in his word, which is promised in these things. His grace is realized in that we get what we don't deserve by being granted his son's perfection. His mercy is realized in not giving us what we did deserve. The son instead received our punishment and his love. His love is fully poured out on the objects of his love, complete and total restoration through the cross of Jesus Christ. All of this and so much more is found in the cross of Jesus. And thus, like Paul, we should say, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are reconciled to God through Jesus' cross, but this still leaves one more thing to be explained, and it is the reason that we are here today the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though we boast in the cross, we can glory in the resurrection. How did a man come out of the grave? How is this possible? The answer is so simple 
that we just go back to the words of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ never sinned and thus death, which is the payment for sins, could not hold him. Peter explains this to us in the book of Acts. He stood up in front of the people of Israel and he spoke these words on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Just so you know, there were thousands and thousands of people when Peter stood up and he said this, and no record has ever been given of anybody refuting what Peter said to these people. They simply said, yeah, we know that he did these things through Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. It would be more probable for the moon to come alive and have a conversation with you tonight about the price of oranges than it would be for Jesus Christ to not have come out of the grave. It's not just unlikely, it is impossible. Jesus did not prevail over the grave in the grave. He prevailed over the grave in life, with his life and in his death. This is the wonder of Jesus Christ, and this is the marvel of the resurrection. And this can be yours by one single definitive act of faith. With the faith of a child and by accepting what he did for you, you too can have the absolute guarantee, the assurance of eternal life. God has given us the knowledge of good and evil, and he asks us to choose the good to choose Jesus. When we do, access to that tree of life which was taken away from us all those thousands of years ago is restored. And Paul explains this in the book of Ephesians. Here's what he says. And you, meaning anybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil who got us into this mess. And the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Remember I said we're born in sin. We're by nature children of wrath with God, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, remember I brought up mercy? Because of his great love, which, which he loved us. I brought up love. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I brought up the grace. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of the grace of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Remember I said he wants to lavish infinite grace upon us. And Paul is confirming that right there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. The life that was lost way back at the beginning is restored through Jesus, the seed of the woman. When we call on him, the Bible says that we are seated with God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To God, it is already done. Just as Adam sinned, and he couldn't go back before to undo his error, when we call on Jesus, it is done. It is never to be taken away. In the mind of God, it is done once and for all, for all of eternity. You are saved by Jesus Christ. Just as it was impossible for death to hold Jesus because he never spiritually died through sin, it is impossible for death to hold you once you were made alive in Jesus Christ. We have become eternally alive and forever children of God. And Jesus promises us that this is so with his own mouth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is great stuff from a wonderful God. And all he asks you to do is to simply accept it by faith. Paul tells us what that means in the book of Romans. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is all that God asks of you. He doesn't ask you to give money to a church. He doesn't ask you to go out and burn your body in the flames. 
He simply asks that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he came out of the grave to prove that he was a sinless human being. I have two closing verses for you today. Usually I only give one, but I'm gonna give you two. The first is from the Old Testament and then one from the New. This one from the Old Testament comes from just before the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52. I want you to listen to a word that he says here. He says, the Lord has laid bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The word salvation is the word Yeshua. And if you know what I have on my necklace, sometimes I show this to people. It's a star of David. It's got the name of Jesus on it in Hebrew. It's the word Yeshua. All the nations of the earth will see the Jesus of our God. Even in the Old Testament, it's telling us he's coming. This one is coming. And then in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have our other closing verse. It says here, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. All right, for those of you who come regularly, next week is going to be Genesis 29, 15 through 30. It's called Seven Years and Seven Days from the Law to Grace. This is going to be our 68th Genesis sermon. Jacob is going to go to get a wife, and he's going to end up with two. And that's a picture of what we've been talking about today, the law and the grace of God in these two women that he marries. The Lord has all of you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So I would ask you to call on him and let him do marvelous things in you and through you. Last thing before we take communion today, I do this every week. I take the verses that we've looked at and I make them into a poem. And that'll help you remember some of the things that we've talked about. Today is no different. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why? Thus you shall not taste, though its fruit appears sweet. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. However, the fruit was eaten and sin entered the man. But when this happened, God revealed his plan. To the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike the heel of the man. Don't disbelieve, though it may take many long years. In time, God gave Israel a noble law in which could only be fulfilled by one who had no flaw. My statutes and my judgments you shall keep, which if a man does, he shall by them he shall live. The word is not high above you, nor is it in the deep. And it will certainly be fulfilled in the son whom I shall give. Under the law, David saw his own impurity and how the law could never set him free. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. But in the fullness of time, God executed his plan by sending his own son in the likeness of a man. An angel appeared to Mary and told her she would be with child, but she couldn't imagine it. To this young Jewish girl, it seemed just too wild. An angel, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, speaking truly, the Holy Spirit will come upon you to fulfill God's plan. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He will come through you. It is the fulfillment of the promise long ago sworn. And this child grew and lived his life perfectly. And his reward was for us to hang him upon a tree. But it was all part of God's plan that we would scourge and then crucify this man. But this wasn't the end of the life of this man. Though he entered the grave, he prevailed over it. God raised him from the dead by his mighty right hand and now in heaven by his father, he does sit. Peter told marvelous words at Pentecost of God's designs. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, he was delivered by purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified. It is so. And put to death this man among whom you did trod. But God, him God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. In him returned animated life and breath. Death is swallowed up in victory, so to him please submit. May God forbid I will boast in and only nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, saved by that which is highest priced. 
It is the precious shed blood of our Lord Jesus. It is he who went to the cross of Calvary for us. And so he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. Amen. For as long as eternity does last. And I have the keys of Hades and death and your soul. I can revive. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God who has prevailed and set us on a course that none other could have sailed. He has restored us to eternal life in the presence of God. In him alone there is peace, and on golden streets we shall trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you that everything that was against us, your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, your mercy, your grace, your truth, all of these things which pulled in attention against us were resolved at that one moment in time. And thank you that you have allowed us to accept the good, the good of which you did for us, and to walk away from the things of the world and trying to save ourselves. But instead, you've given us the ability to just simply call on Jesus and allow him to cleanse us of our sins and to reconcile us to you forever. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for the glory and the splendor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us hope so that when we do stand by a grave of a person who is called on Jesus, we can look in there and say, this isn't the end. This is just a, a way station on the way to glory. Thank you for that promise, Lord. And I ask that each person here be blessed today. And if somebody here has heard something today that they have not acted on yet, that they would do so before they get in their car and drive away because they don't know their last moment and they don't know if they're going to be eternally separated from you without making that choice. So I would ask that you impress that upon their hearts. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for every good gift which is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.